0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, Price and Coverage Match Limited by State Law.
1: Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templetonorg podcast.
2: Listener
3: supported.
2: WNYC Studios. Wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay.
3: All
0: right. You're listening listening. to Radio Lab.
2: Radio Lab. From WNYC. (laughs) See?
3: Yeah.
1: Okay, I'm just going to start. Tree walks into a bar. (laughs) Okay. Bartender asks. What'll you have? Tree says. Uh, yeah. Oh, you want to guess?
0: Well, no, I'm just, I'm already, I'm already dismayed by your concept because trees, as I last checked, can't walk. They're rooted to the ground. They just pack, go you know. with
1: it, Lulu. Just go with it. Come on. Okay, tree walks into a bar. Okay, yeah. Bartender says, what'll you have?
0: Uh, I've got a branching decision ahead of me, but I'll go with a, a logger.
1: Anything but a lager.
0: Oh, anything but a lager. Okay.
1: That's right. (laughs) Another one. Okay. Three dendrochronologists walk into a bar and... Okay, wait. Yeah.
0: Dendrochronologists are people who look at dendrites in your brain.
1: No, they there are people who study tree rings.
0: Oh, they just look at the rings inside a tree stump?
1: That's what they do. That's what they study.
0: Okay, so three dendrochronologists walk into a bar. And
1: I mean that's 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 not a joke. That's the beginning of the story. <laughs> okay. The rest of the story is basically, um, three tree ring scientists walk into a bar, and as the night goes on, and as the talk gets a little boozier, they come up with this kind of harebrained idea to take this one particular set of tree rings to put it next to a seemingly unrelated thing. But in doing that they start to see all kinds of new things that they've never seen before, that maybe nobody has ever seen before, including an invisible hand shaping the history of our planet and the history of of, of us.
0: All right, well, before we take off on this wild tale, should we do the who we are thing? (laughs) I'm
1: Latif Nasser. I'm Lulu Miller. This, of course, is
0: Radiolab. All right, so set it up for us. Where does it all start?
1: Okay, so we're in Tucson, Arizona, at a bar called Tiger's Taproom. Okay. It's more than 100 years old, and it's sort of famous locally for its very old bartender who has been serving drinks there since 1959.
0: Cool. Alright, now I'm picturing Gandalf like serving drinks to these three tree ring scientists sitting there <laughs> looking at the bar, counting the rings on the bar. So we're not freaks. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we go to a bar, we go and drink. We don't count rings. This is Valerie. Valerie Truet. Scientist number one. And I'm a professor of dendrochronology at the University of Arizona. Which is in Tucson. Uh, where you would not necessarily expect a tree ring lab because there's not many trees around.
1: But, kind of weirdly, uh, she says this is actually where the modern field was born.
3: Because the first dendrochronologist was actually an astronomer. Who
1: was studying the sun.
3: Andrew Ellicott Douglas. That happened because... He thought to himself, well, trees... They're sensitive to, to the sun. You know, they eat sunshine. And they get to be very old. So maybe I can learn something about the sun from the rings and trees. It's Like
1: trees are the original astronomers recording their solar observations. Yeah,
3: exactly.
0: Huh. But what could you actually learn about the sun from the rings? Isn't it just like each year the tree grows, it gets a ring, and you learn how old it is by counting them? Like, is there a thing beyond the counting the rings?
3: Yes, so it's a very good
1: question. So Valerie explained, yes, it's true, most trees grow a new ring every year.
3: But what fewer people know is that not every ring is equally wide, not every ring is equally dense, not every ring has the same chemistry.
1: And it's in those differences, Valerie says, where you can learn all kinds of stuff about the tree And even stuff not about the tree. (laughs) Exactly.
0: So like what? Like what?
1: Well, you could learn about the weather. How hot or how cold it is. You can see how much it rained. Storms. Or didn't. Droughts. You could see trauma. Yeah. You know, which could create a very skinny ring. You can see fires, which leave scars, or bugs, which leave these uh, red or blue stains.
3: Human history as well. All kinds
1: of stuff. Okay, continue. So, back to Tucson. Valerie's at this bar to meet up with two other scientists because they're all in town for this big conference.
3: An international tree ring conference.
1: For all of the dendrochronologists in the Americas. Is
0: it like four people? No. <laughs> okay, how many people is it?
3: Oh, in total? Yeah. I don't know, maybe 200, 250 people. A oh. lot. And among them were
1: Valerie's bar buddies, Marta. Marta Dominguez del Mas. Spanish scientist. Uh, specialized
3: in uh, dendroarchaeology.
1: Studies the wood in shipwrecks. What? Yeah, like she dives down and examines the rings in the wood of the hulls of the ships that wrecked hundreds of years ago.
3: Ah, yeah, the treasure is the wood. Third
1: one. Uh, so my name is Grant Harley. Grant. Originally from Florida. I was He's born a, paleoclimatologist, a paleoclimatologist. Associate professor of geography at the University of Idaho. Uses tree rings to study past and future climate. So, it's one of the nights of this conference.
3: I think it was the last evening of the conference. That they hit the bar. That
1: they hit the bar. So they're sitting there drinking some beers. Yeah, like, we're sitting around this, this table and and uh, we start talking about this research project that I have going on. And yeah. Grant says something like, I- "I've I've got a puzzle and I'm not quite sure how to solve it and I'm wondering if you two can help me out. Okay. So he says, for the past few years, I've been doing this research down in Florida. Like, all the way, like, almost to Key West, right near the southernmost point of the U.S. On this island called Big Pine Key. Big Pine Key. Studying... These really gnarly pine
4: trees that are basically like big bonsai trees.
1: And he tells Valerie and Marta, one day who's out there, you know, just doing his normal research, which is like taking these pencil-shaped core samples from these trees. And he notices something he hadn't seen before.
3: He said he saw these tree rings. These, like, really,
1: really narrow rings. So narrow, he could barely see them. Super, super narrow, like, really, really small. That automatically tells you, like, wow. Something bad happened here. That tree was really stressed. So he's going through the list of things that he knows can stress out a tree. Drought. Maybe it didn't rain that much. Insects can have a different. Maybe the tree got attacked by beetles. Or it was unusually cold. Keep on going back to the drawing board to find
4: out what is the signal in these tree rings.
1: Until he comes up with a theory.
3: Hurricanes. Hurricanes?
0: But wouldn't, wouldn't a hurricane make a fat ring because it's bringing so much rain?
3: Well... I mean, a hurricane, as as you know, is pretty powerful. Yeah. Uh, according to Valerie, a hurricane just shreds a tree. It doesn't just lose its needles. It can also lose its uh, big branches, obviously. Hmm. But how would
0: you prove that?
1: Turns out... Noah. Noah, as in the government weather people... Has this data set. It's just a big list of all the hurricanes that have happened in the Atlantic since 1851 that the government made by combing through old newspapers. Compared that list
3: to those years that he saw with very narrow rings. And they matched. Bingo. In other words... He was right. They were caused by hurricanes. Huh.
1: And Valerie says this match was exciting on a couple of different levels. For one thing...
3: I don't think I'd heard about using tree rings to reconstruct hurricanes.
1: It just felt like a new way to use tree rings to understand the world. But also, it gave us new hurricane data which we don't have a lot of.
3: Because there are so few of them. So it's hard Mm. to calculate how frequently they happen Mm. because you have so few...
1: Data points, kind of.
3: Data points, exactly.
1: And what Grant realizes is he might be sitting on a lot more hurricane data points because his trees, the trees with the skinny rings that seem to represent hurricanes, they go back way further than the government data. Correct. They go back another 150 years-ish to 1707. So Grant's thinking he might be able to use his tree rings to almost double the amount of historical hurricane data we have for this part of the world. Problem is, he now needs something outside of the tree rings to prove that. And this is essentially the puzzle that he brings to Valerie and Marta at the bar.
3: How do I prove this, that this is hurricanes?
1: And Marta...
3: Marta Dominguez del Mas...
1: Is like, it's funny you say that, Because a lot of the shipwrecks I dive at wrecked because of hurricanes.
3: Entire fleets going down because of uh, hurricanes. And so I just spit it out. I'm like, what if we we linked it to? Like, what if you
1: put the tree ring data, where you have Hmm. the skinny rings that you think are hurricanes, Mm -hmm. next to a big list of all the shipwrecks that happened for the last few hundred years? Hmm. Would they match up?
0: Because if they do, we're seeing what?
1: Because if they do, it's like the shipwrecks and the tree rings are both showing us hurricanes. It's
0: like double reference. Huh. Got it.
1: So, okay, so they have this idea at the bar that night. Literally the next morning, they get together (laughs) and start looking around for a list of all the shipwrecks that have happened in that part of the world. And fortunately... There's
3: a very good record, written documentary record of the Spanish uh, shipping trade. From fourteen ninety-two up until it ends around eighteen twenty-five. And when they would wreck, they would keep track of where they wrecked, when they wrecked, why they wrecked, whether it's pirates or or, or hurricanes.
1: They get their hands on this list, they eliminate the shipwrecks they know were caused by something other than hurricanes, or that are in the wrong area, or that, you know, were not in the right time of year. And then Grant takes that shipwreck spreadsheet and merges it with the tree ring
3: spreadsheet. And... I kid you not, they're almost identical. They match. You see the exact same pattern when you compare the shipwreck years to hurricane years with the tree rings. So
1: it's like, okay, fat ring, no shipwrecks. Fat ring, no shipwrecks. Fat ring, no shipwrecks. Narrow ring, tons of shipwrecks.
3: And that, yeah, that was the moment where I'm like, yeah, this is it. This is working.
0: Wow. There's something so, like, satisfying about possibly catching an objective, possibly, an objective truth, an objective happening with these silent bystanders. It's just like a tree. Yes. It just feels harder to come by these days.
3: Yeah, you're spot on. That's what I really like about trees. You can't say the tree's saying this or a tree saying that because you can see it right there in the wood. You can't. You can't make it up. It's right there. Trees don't lie.
0: Okay. And just so I am clear on what they are not lying about, I think what we've just learned is that the shipwreck data confirmed that Grant's skinny tree rings are in fact hurricanes, which means tree rings are now doubling the amount of hurricane data that we have. Tripling. Tripling.
1: So, okay, so the hurricane data the government had at the beginning of all this went back to 1850, right? Then the tree rings extended it back to 1700, so they added, like, 150 years. But now the shipwrecks extended back even further all the way to
3: 1495. Yeah, 150 to 450 years,
0: yeah. Mm. Oh, my God.
1: So these three tree ring scientists basically
3: tripled
1: all of the historical hurricane data that we had for the Caribbean just by, like, lining up these three different data sets. So after they gathered this data, they sent it off to the people who make the hurricane models that, you know, predict how hurricanes are going to develop in the future. So, So now those models can make better predictions, which could in turn, you know, save tons of money and lives.
0: That is so cool.
3: Very cool.
1: Actually, this is, we're still just at the beginning of this story. (laughs) So our tree ring scientists, they sent off this data to the hurricane modelers, but they also kept it for themselves because they're scientists. Trying to wring that sponge dry and get as much science out of that as possible. And they want to see, what else can we notice here?
3: Cut to a few months later. I was staying in this really cheap motel in Flagstaff in uh, Northern Arizona.
1: Valerie was actually on a research trip
3: for a different tree ring project. But I was feeling really under the weather. And so while I was staying in and getting bored out of my head because I couldn't (laughs) go uh, (laughs) do fieldwork, I went to a coffee shop. She's at the coffee shop. I ordered a coffee. I set myself at the window. And she's like, I'll just kind of work here. Pulled up the graph.
1: The graph of the 300 years of shipwrecks, which also kind of stand in for the hurricanes. But anyway, she'd been toying around with it. She hadn't really found anything interesting in it yet. But then I went
3: to grab my coffee and when I went back from
1: the counter
3: towards my laptop, she
1: noticed something in the graph that she hadn't seen when she was looking at it up close. This dip from 1645 to about 1715, where there were virtually no wrecks.
0: No wrecks. That feels not hurricaney.
1: Yeah, so like okay. kind of like a grace period or something. <laughs> like it was like a seventy years of almost no hurricanes.
0: And once you see it, you can't unsee it. All the weathermen between sixteen forty five and seven fifteen were like, "Back to you, Doc. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so she's like, "That's weird. What is what is that period?"
1: And the answer to that question, it does two things. It reveals the secret about the sun that you almost certainly did not learn in school. Okay. And it also shows how this moment, this 70-year stretch, this clear sky time of very few hurricanes, sort of shaped the world we live in today.
3: Hm.
5: Huh.
1: And we'll get to that after the break.
0: Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café, s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter
5: how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions.
0: How to read a politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Lulu. Latif. Radiolab.
1: Uh, Lulu, why don't you just tell me what you have gotten... Where we are? Yeah, where we are.
0: Okay, 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 okay. So we started a story. This is a story about a drunk idea with (sighs) follow-through. That's right. They woke up the next morning and actually went and (laughs) and chased it out. Nice. Uh, So these scientists have, have chased down this wild idea. They've matched tree ring data with shipwreck data. It's allowed them... To look deeper in the past than ever before at hurricanes, they discovered this weird lull. Right. This time where there were less hurricanes. And then you were about to tell us how that lull shaped the modern world we live in today.
1: Right. So Valerie sees this lull and she's like, that's weird, but also familiar.
3: The dates were 1645 to 1725. I'm like, I know those dates somewhere from what is, what is that period? It came to me pretty uh, quickly. This period, this exact period is the mounder minimum.
1: The mounder minimum, also called the
0: Maunder minimum. Okay. What the heck is a Maunder minimum?
3: It's a very well-known period of low solar activity. A period when the sun was weak.
1: Apparently the sun, the kind of solar radiation that comes from the sun, it's not constant. What?
0: So there are periods when the sun is like, "Mm, my burner's on high, my burner's on low.
1: Yeah. When the sun is at its peak, it's called maximum at its lowest point, minimum.
0: Huh. So does that mean that during the Maunder minimum, it was actually colder?
3: It was colder then, yeah. Huh.
1: And would it be darker or it would be just as bright? Just as bright. Just as bright, but just cooler.
3: Yep, exactly. I don't know if you've heard of the Little Ice Age. I haven't.
1: Started at the beginning of the 14th century and lasted roughly 500
3: years. And it's kind of the opposite of what we're experiencing now, right? Rather than glaciers retreating, you have glaciers advancing. Hmm.
1: According to Valerie, the coldest period of that Little Ice Age was the Maunder Minimum. The
3: fact that the sun didn't have as much energy contributed to it being colder.
1: And the colder temperature of that period might have meant cooler oceans, which in theory could mean less hurricanes. Because the fuel
4: that drives hurricanes is really warm at sea surface temperatures. Um, if
5: you don't have that, you really don't have a hurricane.
0: Huh. So then that could explain why there were fewer shipwrecks during that time? Yeah. Hmm. That makes me feel weird. Why? I just feel like for the deniers, for the human-caused climate change deniers, the phrase they bandied about all the time was like, No, there's natural cycles. It warms up, then it cools down.
1: Yeah, natural cycles. Can't predict the weather. Oh, they do say that. Yep.
0: So then is this showing that the sun does play some kind of role in climate change? No,
1: not at all. This actually shows the opposite. Check this out.
0: Record-breaking temperatures. Record-breaking heat waves. Dangerous
4: heat waves. As
1: we all know, in the last few years, we have had the hottest years in the history of our planet. Some heat wave. Unprecedented heat wave. It's
4: really hot.
0: It's
1: going to be a brutal couple days. It's like we're setting records all all over the place, right? Yep.
5: Weather stations are logging a sea of red as temperatures
0: hit record highs.
1: All of this has happened at a time when we're not even at a maximum yet.
0: We're in we're in a week, even though it's, it's so hot? Yeah, exactly. Ugh. Right now, we're in the middle
1: of a smaller 11-year solar cycle. We hit the minimum in 2019. We're still ramping up.
3: A lot more heat is coming our way. Oh, no. Yeah.
1: Okay, so back to the story. Okay. So Valerie was in the coffee shop. She saw the lull in the shipwreck data, and she recognized it as the Maunder Minimum. But when Grant looked at that same time period period of the the coldest period of the Little Ice Age, 1645 to 1750, he recognized something else the golden age of piracy.
0: The golden age of piracy? That's right.
1: The golden age of piracy. Grant is a big fan of pirates, uh, has been ever since he was a kid. Uh, Turns out this is common knowledge among pirate nerds, but in almost these exact same years, there was an explosion in bands of pirates basically robbing and hijacking ships in the Caribbean specifically and in the Atlantic more broadly. Hmm. Like it, it was when piracy became, first of all, more common, but also like became way more culturally visible. Many of the most famous pirates you know of came out of this very period.
0: Are you going to tell me who?
1: Uh, Henry Morgan, a.k.a. Captain Morgan. Captain Morgan. He's real?
5: Yeah. We have captured a Spanish galleon.
4: Anne
1: Bonnie and Mary
4: Reed. If I had a pistol, I'd
1: shoot out your gizzard pin. Blackbeard. Blackbeard. I be Blackbeard. Huh. And even if you've never heard of any of those people, you've definitely heard of.
4: Parts of the Caribbean.
0: Oh my gosh, really?
4: Yeah. You are without doubt the worst pirate I've ever heard of. This is the age where the mythology of Pirates of the Caribbean emerged. This, by the way, is Matt Casey. I am a specialist in the 20th century history of Haiti and Cuba at the University of Southern Mississippi. He and Grant actually met on a bus on a field trip. To our bus, right? To New Orleans. And I'm not even sure that we talked the whole two hours, but very quickly within the conversation, we realized that we had a lot in common.
1: Among the things, their love for the golden age of piracy. And at some point, Grant asked him, do you think that this lull in hurricanes that we found in our
4: data could have caused the golden age of piracy? And I I became really excited because, yes, for a historian of the Caribbean, this just makes so much sense.
1: Huh. Matt says, of course, there's no one cause for anything in history. There are a million explanations for the golden age of piracy. There are social reasons, political reasons, economic, cultural, all these different reasons why
4: pirates were in ascendancy
1: at this time.
4: But the fact is. Pirates spend a lot of time on the water. And so as fun as it is to see them as these kind of masters of the sea who just take a licking and can do whatever they want, they're absolutely vulnerable to the elements. Like hurricanes. So less hurricanes could mean a better
1: environment for pirating. Yes. Hmm. But. That was not my first thought. Matt Casey says when he looks at this oh period goodness. of time, this this lull in hurricanes that lines up with the Maunder Minimum, that lines up with the golden age of piracy, he sees it lining up with a whole other thing.
4: This is the moment that shaped the history of the world in a way that people don't always recognize. The world? It sounds like an exaggeration, but I that is not too hyperbolic.
1: And this moment, Matt says, is... The sugar revolution. The sugar revolution.
4: One of the first places where sugar production occurred on a large scale is in the Caribbean, Hmm. probably 1620s or 1630s. It
1: was this massively pivotal moment in world history, Matt says, where European plantation owners brought thousands of people against their will. Enslaved
4: Africans indentured Europeans out to these islands in the Caribbean to produce sugar on an enormous scale. People refer to a sugar plantation as a factory in a field.
1: Between 1650 and 1725, hundreds of thousands, by some accounts nearly a million, people were kidnapped to work in the Caribbean. Many died.
4: Horrendous in, in the scale of human tragedy.
1: And in roughly that same time period, sugar consumption in Europe quadrupled.
4: That sugar produces massive amounts of wealth, so much so that European industrialization was actually paid for by um, how lucrative sugar was in the Caribbean.
1: A lot of historians, including Matt, argue that the profits from the sugar
4: plantations were the startup capital of industrial capitalism in England.
1: And that these profits not only funded the Industrial Revolution, but essentially gave birth to modern capitalism itself. And the way Matt sees it, part of what allowed for all of that to happen, the boom in sugar production, the expansion in slavery, the birth of capitalism, is this decades-long maunder minimum lull in hurricanes. It, it was it was a moment of calm weather that let the plantations flourish, the ships Sail filled with pirates, but also enslaved people and sugar and money. This period of stability, it subtly enabled all of that to happen.
0: Okay, we're, okay, okay. What does this all have to do with trees? Right.
1: So trees is kind of the way they notice this, like, subtle Rube Goldberg machine that has (laughs) been playing out over centuries, right? Um, Okay, so, meaning
0: what yeah what are the what are the, the bells and whistles
1: the, right okay well so okay so so basically um mm-hmm. these three scientists in this bar they use a combo of information they got from tree rings and information about shipwrecks to discover this 70 year period where the sun was dimmer which somehow led to fewer hurricanes mm-hmm. and that 70 year period had this sort of disproportionate effect on agriculture, on uh, basically slavery, on capitalism, on the way our modern world gets made. Maybe.
2: (laughs) This is all (laughs) a big theory.
1: And I think the thing that makes this story worth telling right now is like all of that, the Maunder Minimum, their estimate is that that was about 1 degree celsius of cooling. And now we are we are doing we are doing this to ourselves but like in the reverse. We are now the sun. Huh. Whereas the sun cooled the planet down by 1 degree, we are now turning up our own thermostat by 2 huh. degrees maybe. Okay. Can we keep it to 2 degrees? Like like to me it's like Like, we're changing our climate, and what new possibilities, and even kind of what new cruelties, like, are we going to unleash? Are we going to open up? I don't know. I don't know if you can say for sure. It's unimaginable.
0: This story's just ramping my fear. Like, does that give you anything other than just, like, make you want to lie down and... and No,
1: and I think it does. Like, I think it's, like, I think it's, like, cry. so... We're, like, meerkats, you know? How so? We're, like, running around foraging for little grubs. yeah. And then every once in a while, like, one of us stands up and looks around. Yeah. Like, that's to me what they did in the bar. Like, it's, like, one of those moments of, like, standing yeah. up, looking around, being like, whoa, there's a big picture here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It takes those kinds of Uh, like bar, bus, whatever, wherever moments to like kind of sit back and be like, wait a second, all this stuff is connected. Like all this stuff is like, we're trying to like divide up the world to make it comprehensible, but it's actually, it's all woven together.
0: Stay tuned. More to come following the break. Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café, s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L com radiolab rules and restrictions may apply wnyc studios is brought to you by zbiotics seize the day after a night of drinks with zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink zbiotics was invented by phd scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day drink zbiotics before your first drink drink responsibly and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Okay, Latif, hello. Hello. Welcome. Thanks. <laughs> to Radiolab. Uh, where am I? <laughs> while you were on vacation, mm-hmm. I got into some reporting hijinks. Okay. okay. Well, where did you go on vacation?
1: I went to Iceland.
0: Okay. So, as you were like flying down over the island, your family's all beside you, I'm guessing, covered in snacks. Underneath you in the ocean, mm-hmm. there was a pretty stunning and kind of terrifying thing happening. Okay. And you were gone, and I was curious, so I decided to plunge in, so to speak. Okay. There he is with all <laughs> his books. You look like such a mad librarian. Yeah.
5: Anyway, hey, Hank, I got
0: my... I also brought Soren, our editor, with me, and together we called up the guy who I first heard about all this from.
5: I'm Hank Green. I make internet content. <laughs> like? Like? But I make a lot of science uh, TikToks and tweets and YouTube videos.
0: You familiar with this gentleman?
5: Yeah, of course.
2: I, I feel like he's one of the smarter people out there doing science stuff online. Like, he's the host of uh, the YouTube channel SciShow. Yeah. But he's also written novels and uh, founded several media companies. Yeah.
5: Busy guy.
0: Well, we are so—thank you. We know you didn't really want to do this.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to—I just wanted to be very clear— um, where I was coming from.
0: This story is going to get a little tricky, but it all started for Hank in the middle of summer 2023, which was a pretty depressing one on the climate change front. The hottest June on record, followed by the hottest July on record. And for Hank in particular.
5: Mentally, I was in a weird spot. I mean, I was in the midst of being treated for cancer. And during chemo, and I'm through it now, um, during chemo, I had about a week of being completely useless when I would only consume content and then, like, maybe four or five days when I felt good enough to, like, make stuff. And Hank says he would spend a lot of his downtime sort of just reading, researching, looking online. And I had been confronted by a a lot of really sort of apocalyptic...
0: We are reaching the end.
5: ...doomsday prepper kind of people on TikTok...
0: ...having a panic attack for the last hour. Um,
5: ...who were looking at... The temperature of the North Atlantic Ocean unprecedented warming and it was hotter than it had ever been. Ever been in recorded history and things are
0: only getting worse.
3: It's not good. The Holocene extinction, the sixth extinction event is probably starting now. I'm going to explain this with a visual. And
0: all of these TikTokers are pointing to this one chart. And here I can
2: show it to you right here.
0: Oh, you just shared it to me? Okay. Yeah. Okay.
2: So it's basically a graph of the, the sea surface temperatures in the North Atlantic right. over the last couple of decades. It's kind of a pretty graph. Yeah. Yeah, It's a bunch of squiggly blue lines going up and down. And that's sort of the seasonal change. And then you can see the averages going up over time.
5: But then there's a red line, which is this year. Mm-hmm. And that line is creeping up, up, up. And then it has a spike.
2: Sudden red.
5: Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that line is like way above the average even the seasonal ups and downs
1: it's not even close like the the high jumper has cleared the pole
0: yeah
2: yeah and this spike is happening over the course of months or weeks or i think it's days days oh an
0: existential threat to everything we know so
2: all the tiktokers are basically like this is it it's happening now this is us falling over the cliff
5: we're falling over the cliff
0: figure out your relationship with jesus christ and are you watching this stuff literally, like, while you're getting chemo? Or yeah, you, I
5: probably didn't see it, like, during the moment when the chemo was going into my body. But certainly during the times when I was... does to be I when was, people doom scroll Just <laughs>
0: picturing, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, so I'd seen this, and...
0: Are we all about to die? You may have seen this
5: graph. Uh, if you haven't, I'm sorry, I'm the one...
0: And Hank decides to hop on
5: TikTok himself. Like, I, I made a little series that was, like, trying to... Like contextualize it. We're not there yet. We're not anywhere close to there yet. At the time I was seeing and I was like, I don't like it probably just some kind of natural variation where it's like cooler than average right now in some parts of the world and it's hotter than average in other parts. And also we're entering on, on El Nino. So El Nino is just like a warmer climate time, generally. And you take one little spot on the globe and blips happen. You know, there's natural variation across the earth. I
1: don't know. That that doesn't mean we shouldn't be worried. Like, now is not the time to say, it, uh, hey, it's getting a lot warmer, but no big deal. Totally.
0: And and to be clear, Hank takes this stuff very seriously.
5: As a person who's been worried about climate change for the— my dad was the state director of the Nature Conservancy in Florida when I was growing up. So, like, we're a family of environmentalists. My mom's a sociologist who worked on sustainability, like— and I'm, like, I have a degree in environmental studies, uh, like, I've been— in this for a long time. And it's very scary. This is like, (laughs) like this is the biggest problem humanity has ever faced. But you know, there's sort of a debate that's like, do we need to get people more scared about climate change? Or do we need to get people more hopeful about climate change? Because you go around a bend eventually where it's like, there's nothing to be done and I will just be hopeless and sad. And I think a lot of people are there
0: Right. If you're too scared, you like tip into nihilism kind of.
5: Yeah. And this is like it's going to be like a bell curve of worry that we're all on somewhere. And in order to get like everybody to the appropriate amount of worry, we're always pushing some people to way too worried. And like there's like not really too worried about climate change until and unless you give up on trying to solve the problem. Mhm. So like
0: I'm So according to Hank, when it came to this temperature spike in the North Atlantic, his sense was that these people online were being way too alarmist.
5: There was a sort of a mathematics of gambling guy <laughs> um, which isn't really a climate scientist as you might expect, who who was getting a lot of traction by tweeting about how this was a really big deal. And then he was getting like on the news. Huh. And so Hank thought, maybe this is a moment
2: to dampen rather than, you know, Fan the flames. able to
5: act because that takes time.
2: But also keep the conversation focused on things that we might be able to
5: do. Over the next week or two on my TikTok, I'm going to make some videos about the things that we are actually doing right now and will be doing in the future to help take care of this.
0: So that is how Hank is spending this hot, hot summer: going through chemo, holding a candle for hope, battling climate nihilism. And then?
5: I was scrolling science news in bed late at night, like before (laughs) going to sleep. Like I do. (laughs) Um.
0: Yep he comes across a link to an article that made him sit straight up in bed.
5: Yeah. Um, It's like 11 o'clock at night. I have to get up at (laughs) 7.30 in the morning and I'm like, oh, I'm going to read a lot right now. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) Okay, so the thing he sees, it's this article in Science, it's a write-up of three recent studies and what they found is that the spike in the north. Atlantic sea temperatures, this, like, troublingly warming water.
1: This year's spike. That one we were talking about, This year's recent spike
0: may have been caused by this thing, which is that a few years ago, the UN put into place some regulations that forced cargo ships to start burning cleaner fuel to, you know, reduce the pollution that they make. And that, doing that good thing, these papers said, that caused the water to get warmer.
1: Yeah. Wait, so, so they're saying that getting rid of pollution that you would think would make the problem better is actually, in this one spot for a while at least, making the problem worse. Right. How?
0: All right, so let's go back to before this regulation, this change had happened, all these – Big, hulky cargo ships are crisscrossing the North Atlantic, chugging along with their big smokestacks, puffing out big plumes of smoggy smoke.
5: Cargo ships burn, like, the dirtiest oil. It's like the oil that's left at the bottom. Like that
0: mayonnaise black mayonnaise. Yeah, you have like, to, like,
5: whoa. heat it up yeah. before it'll even flow kind of oil.
0: And so there's all this carbon dioxide going out into the air, of course, but there is also all this sulfur dioxide going out into the air. Okay, and that's horrible.
5: Sulfur dioxide is bad for people. It's like it's bad to breathe, and then it also is also bad for the environment because it, it turns into sulfuric acid when it mixes with water, and then it falls down to the earth as acid rain. So that's where acid rain comes mm, from, right. which is which is why the UN wanted to regulate
2: it. But it
0: turns out that in addition to being horrible for human health and making acid rain, sulfur dioxide also does something else.
5: It actually can seed clouds. As the ship goes by and it pumps the sulfur dioxide up, you can see, just like kind of a contrail that a jet would leave behind, you can see they're called ship tracks. Hank actually showed us a, a picture
2: of this that was taken from, from space.
0: These tracks are like so big. It just looks like giant zebra stripes over the ocean of just white.
5: When there's the right amount of heat and water in the air, you get all of these extra clouds that you normally wouldn't get. Okay. And the clouds reflect the energy of the sun into space. So instead of hitting the water and heating up the surface of the ocean, it hits a cloud. You know, you could think of it just like a very thin um, umbrella. And then there's a shadow on the ocean. Which keeps the water at least a little bit cooler.
0: So so suddenly, you take that away, you burn cleaner fuel, and then it's like taking away the beach umbrella. You're suddenly just, you're the ocean and the ocean is getting blasted by the sun.
5: Got it. It's not unanticipated. This is actually something that climate scientists have known about for for decades, but it is non-intuitive. And what this means is that overall, we have not seen the actual full effects of The carbon dioxide it's like the the warming
2: from carbon dioxide has been worse than you thought up to now it's just been sort of hidden by all the dirty clouds that we've had blocking light
5: right
2: and if you get rid of that you're going to realize just how bad it really is right
5: yeah um, and...
0: That feels like, oh, things are, this is doomy, like, I don't... This now like, seems oh, like a doom on a like, doom to me, Yeah, right?
1: I agree. Like, I feel like it's a double-decker doom,
5: yeah. We're just
0: gonna burn, like, we're, I go to more denialism. I mean, I,
5: I was, I found this very exciting and, like, fascinating.
0: But, not Hank Green. He reads this study and sees a silver lining. A literal silver lining. In the smog cloud. A
5: a smog cloud that isn't there anymore. Right. The thing that excited me the most about it is we did it and then we undid it in order to make life better for people who are now not breathing that sulfur dioxide into their lungs. But now we have a chance to study what that looks like.
0: He sees these papers and he's like, we have just done a pretty monumental experiment. Yeah. Because for decades we had been letting these ships put out these polluty smoggy smoke trails, which just so happened to act like umbrellas and shade the ocean. And now that we've taken the umbrella away, we can measure how big or small that cooling effect was.
5: But then the broader the broader question is, can you then, if we were doing it before, and it, and we know what the effect was. Can you then find another better way to do it intentionally without putting the acid rain stuff, smoggy stuff in the air?
1: Huh. So, like, like can we find a cleaner way to do the cloud umbrella just on purpose this time?
5: Yeah.
0: So it's like ele- he reads a ton more. He gets really excited. He goes to bed and dreams of, like, data and hope and ships. Okay. And then he wakes up the next day and fires out this, like, big Twitter thread kind of explaining what he sees
5: and oh boy
2: (laughs) you put out a thread and then somebody writes back no 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 no, God no God no 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 Hank no no Hank Hank stop no Hank bad Hank go (laughs) do you remember the first one you read and how it it might have been that one Yeah. (laughs) That was, by the way, a quoted uh, tweet. No, there was only like three no. I think it was no,
5: no, no, (laughs) I think was the tweet. (laughs) I mean, certainly it triggered, like, please explain to me what I have stepped in here.
0: So, what Hank had stepped in was a heated and sometimes vicious debate. This
1: whole line of research is unethical and a bad idea among
0: climate activists. It's a sign of desperation. And climate scientists. Cats out of the bag. People know these, these options exist. Something about a little thing called geoengineering. This would not be the first choice. No, no, or third or fourth choice. So geoengineering 101, what is it, first of all? So
5: yeah, the, uh, geoengineering is just any way that you would change the planet intentionally. But, but in general, when it comes to climate change, we're talking about decreasing the amount of heat in the system of the planet.
2: Like, well, Just do whatever you can to cool things down.
5: Right. And the simplest way you could imagine is like putting a giant mirror in space and (laughs) reflecting some of the sun's light back. And then there's like a shadow on the planet in that area. Like, that's not really what is being proposed. But, but
0: okay, I will say that until very recently, I thought this work of geoengineering was kind of like futile hubris. Like, you read these stories of people in the 19th century shooting Mm -hmm. cannons into clouds to try to get rain to reduce drought. Or, like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I read about, like, the Moscow mayor, Yuri Luzov, trying to spray a (laughs) mist of cement on clouds to prevent snowfall.
1: Yeah, a mist of cement is never a phrase I thought I would ever hear. So,
0: like... To me, I thought geoengineering was like not actually that realistic. But what I've learned in talking to Hank and digging into all this stuff is that, no, the technology is there now. And there are some serious proposals from serious people being entertained seriously, including a proposal
5: to put sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere mm.
2: now to be clear i mean like hank points out that is very different than the ship clouds he got excited about because those are lower down they're local and they disappear on the scale of days whereas sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere
5: would float around the whole planet and be a very thin umbrella wherever it ends up and also in the stratosphere it would stay there for a long time.
2: How
0: long?
5: Like years. And there's a lot about this that we we just don't know. Like we don't know exactly what's going to get coolest, what's going to get warmer. We don't know how diseases are going to move around in that world.
0: So there are a lot of people who understandably when geoengineering comes up are like no 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 because they're thinking about these unintended consequences, you know, and there's scientists who study this stuff. Like if the tropics cool they might dry out and then you have less monsoon and then you get crop shortage. Right. And like then it, you actually might get more dust.
5: Right, 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 right. There is going to be a chance that it's really bad for everyone that you set off something that you didn't intend to set off. And then there's also the problem of there are going to be people who did not decide to do this who are going to be negatively impacted. Right. A hubris is is like that. That Like we finally found the textbook definition, you know, like let's change the whole planet the only one we have and just hope.
0: So Hank is like, yeah, global geoengineering where you don't know what the effects are, that's bad.
5: Yeah, it's terrifying. But the opportunity to learn a bunch about this extra cloud formation over the last decades, here's an area of the planet that's like, we created clouds on and now we're not creating clouds on it anymore. And we get to see what the effect of that is is
2: hank's point is that we can take this smaller local thing that already happened look at the data and find out did it have no effect or half the effect we thought or only over here but it turned out in the long term it had a different effect those are all questions that would be really useful to know the answers to the the opportunity to study this is huge
5: and i don't like i don't know how else we'd get data like this
1: so he's not saying do it he's just saying like research
0: it But that brings us to the other flavor of anger Hank was seeing in response to his thread. There were people who were like, shh,
5: don't tell people about this.
0: There are some people, including climate scientists, who say we shouldn't even talk about geoengineering, like at all.
5: Yeah, that um, their main thing is you don't give the fossil fuel industry a way out that's not don't burn fossil fuels anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuz that's the not not to not to belittle that cuz like that's the trap. That's that is like a purposeful playbook yeah. pioneered by the tobacco industry, you know, it, it cast doubt, uh but also point in every direction at any possible shiny thing you can that right. will distract from the one thing, the one big thing that you are doing that we
5: actually need to change for anything to get better. Yeah, and I've seen it. And I saw it in response to that thread. I saw people say, "See, environmentalists were wrong the whole time. We shouldn't be doing all of this extra work. We can keep burning fossil fuels. Let's just put sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere and, and solve the problem that way. Fossil fuels are fine." Like I saw that. Even
1: as you all are describing geoengineering, like my back gets thrown up, and I'm like, "Oh God!" Like I'm I'm nervous about that. I'm nervous about talking about this. Yeah.
0: No, I I I, I hear it. Like, and I think it's a real question. Whether it's dangerous to even talk about geoengineering in case people think, oh, okay, let's let's go ahead and do that. Or they think it means that they don't have to worry about reducing fossil fuel emissions. But, oh, if we
5: don't talk about it, they'll still find it and they will joyfully misinterpret it. And it will be the first time a lot of people hear about it. Yeah. And I'd rather have it the first time that people hear about it be from somebody who is perfectly aware that climate change is real (laughs) and i i especially think that like your first exposure to an idea should be a complex one hank's argument is basically because geoengineering
2: is already in the room we need to know how to talk about it
5: we need to figure out whether and how we can do this like if we should we have to make the decision if we should because, Hank
2: says, there might come a point where in addition to solving the global long-term problem, we might need to deal with some more local, more short-term problems.
5: One of the biggest problems with global warming is going to be heat. Like, There's going to be places where it is too hot for people to live without air conditioning. And in those places, if the power goes out, people will just die. Like, Like... In, in ways that we've never seen, like heat ha- kills people already, but like that we like we need to be confronting the reality that like heat is very deadly and there are going to be people who are going to be thinking like, are, is there a way to just make it less hot right here, right now? Yeah, but you don't.
2: But you don't want to go back to putting sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. I mean,
5: but like you could do it with other stuff. So oh. you could also potentially, though this has not been researched as much as it needs to be, just shoot seawater into the air, which is around. Like there's a lot of seawater <laughs> yeah. uh, when you're on the ocean. You just pump it up and
0: then
5: mist it into the air. Huh. Maybe even pump it to where the smokestack is, so that it gets hot and goes higher. Huh. And then the salt. Actually, concede the cloud, or the water droplet itself, concede the cloud, and seawater uh, universally known to be not so bad for the ocean.
0: And you'd get your umbrella made of like virginal seawater. That sounds <laughs> yeah. so great.
5: They're doing it in Australia right now.
0: It's called apparently marine cloud brightening.
5: Yes. So in in Australia, there is a small scale experiment that's just trying to make the clouds over the Great Barrier Reef brighter Hmm. to try and save the Great Barrier Reef. Try to put a little bit of a cool on that and slow things down? Oh. Mm -hmm.
0: Like, that sounds really, like, benevolent and okay. Isn't
5: that interesting that it sounds benevolent okay? Because maybe it isn't. Like, even if it's local, even if if it's temporary, we don't know all the impacts that it's gonna have. Like, you could end up in a world where you, you know, the climate changes in a way that makes it really bad for a certain crop or that makes it really good for a certain disease. And, like, you wouldn't have thought of that one. And now you've heard it. But what are the ones you haven't thought of?
0: Yeah. Like, I will admit I had a conversion this whole journey, these past, like, three weeks of seeing the tweet, researching, getting ready to talk to you, which was that I was like, this is so cool. Everyone needs to know about it. But, like, I feel really torn now because on one hand, like a ship with some salt spraying feels fine and nice and lovely, Mm -hmm. but then it's like, is that just a a shiny distraction? Like, And and more than that, when it comes to nature, there are just, as you were saying, there's so many things we don't know that we don't even know we don't know, and the stakes couldn't be higher. When I think about any chance that someone out there could take this wrong or hear this wrong or decide to jump in whole hog... I'm almost like, just put it back in the box.
2: We can't, though. That's not ours. But, That's not for us to do. I know, we, but
0: like, can't we just be it, like, no, no, well, like human cloning, like, yeah, God, like, we what if we're sh- just like, put, don't?
5: like, Yeah. We there's things we've, we 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 keep in boxes sh- uh, yeah, for like for a I, little while at least. The three of us I, shushing is not going to put that? anything so in a you box. What would you say to like, me? Yeah. Because
0: part of me is like, you're leaving. I'm going to press delete. Like, like, yeah. uh, what would you say to me who's like actually kind of tipping over into the like? I see the terror of even talking about it.
5: You know, the reality is that we are doing geoengineering right now, just recklessly and thoughtlessly, and for capitalist like, reasons.
0: But that's not like deliberate geoengineering, right? That's like No, it, so it's not you you can't call it
5: geoengineering. Been, right. you, like it's just it's like geo screwing around. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like but we are changing the climate. So you're saying we already do it already.
5: Also, like what we all know is that we should put less CO2 into the atmosphere and also we should take CO2 out. So that's going to probably be necessary, like it isn't just going to be taking, it isn't just going to be stopping producing it, it's going to be taking it out and taking CO2 out of the atmosphere is geoengineering.
0: Yeah, like carbon capture stuff.
5: And it will have negative impacts on some people uh, as well as positive impacts on others. Like we're okay with that. So like that's a geoengineering that we're okay with and we have to figure out like where we're not okay. And I am not here to convince Lulu Miller. (laughs) <laughs> that geoengineering is a good idea. Like, I would love for someone to convince me which way I should feel because I don't know. Um, I definitely think we should study it. And talk about it.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, so long as we're talking about the real problem and real solution at the same time. Yeah. Right.
5: But, like, I don't think that we can make a decision by ignoring it.
0: That is, like, are... literally I was talking about that in therapy this morning. So, <laughs> yeah, I, point taken. Don't just ignore it. So, I see your point. That's like you, the talking about it could help us to really shut it down.
5: Uh, or to, 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 under, to take, at least to take the chance uh, with this North Atlantic situation to understand it better. The difference between how bad it is now and how bad it is, it could get is very big. And weirdly, that makes me hopeful because it means that there's slack and. I don't know, I like really, I believe in humanity. I think that we're remarkable problem-solving machines when we recognize problems and uh, look for truth and work together. And you know, that's what science is about.
1: Thank you to Hank Green for coming on to talk to us about this.
0: Big thanks also to Dr. Colin Carson at Georgetown, who studies the potential chain effects of geoengineering, and to Avishai Artsy.
1: This episode was reported by Lulu Miller with help from Alyssa Jung Perry.
0: It was also produced with help from Alyssa Jung Perry with music and mixing help from Jeremy Bloom.
1: This is Radio Lab. Thanks for listening.
4: Radiolab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Aketi Foster Keys, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyana Sambadam, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwan, Alex Neeson, Sara Kari, Anna Roskiewicz-Paz, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Sarah Sambach, Arianne Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Timmy Broderick. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Natalie Middleton.
0: Hi, this is Tamara from Pasadena, California. Leadership support for Radiolab Science Programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation.
5: Radiolab is supported
1: by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.